0: Well, good morning, and indeed, it is a very, very good morning. I'm from Michigan, so when you wake up in the morning and it's 70 degrees out in January, it's a very, very happy experience. I'm also very just happy to be here. This is the Agriculture Conference. I've been looking forward to this for quite some time, and our message this morning is entitled, How to Be Human Again, and I have a lot of information in a short period of time, so we're going to dig right in open with prayer, and let's open our hearts and our, and our minds and our ears to what the Lord might show us this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the goodness of Jesus and his ways. We thank you for having our best interests at heart, for knowing how we can thrive most in your kingdom and your design. We ask for an awakening. We ask that you would give us motivation, desire, and a love of the truth, of the truth of Jesus and the ways of Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to take you way, way, way back, and then we're going to zoom all the way forward through the history and look at what a potential near-future scenario might look like. But let's go all the way back to in the beginning. God created man in his own image, in the image of God created he him, male and female, created he them. You know the scriptures well from Genesis, but have you ever noticed, this is mankind at our best. This was fully human. God's design for humankind, no sin, in this beautiful setting prior to the fall. Now, I'm sure it's not lost on the attendees of the Ad Agra conference that Adam and Eve were placed... In a garden, they were given agricultural labor as their occupation. Tend this garden and keep it, naming the animals. The care of plants and animals, originally God's plan and design. Notice this was not the city of Eden. This is not Adam and Eve have been placed in the Eden townhouses in downtown Edenville. Now this is not even Eden Estates in the suburbs. This is the garden of. Eden. So man was at his best in a country living setting doing agriculture. Now contrast that with just a couple of chapters forward. You get the fall of mankind. You get the first murder. You've got Cain. Cain's genealogy is the genealogy of those who became the children of men. And then the whole world became filled with wickedness. And the only thoughts of man was only evil continually. That was a sorry state of affairs for humankind. How did it get there? What was the very first thing it says in Cain's genealogy? Have you ever read it in Genesis 4, verse 17? It says the first thing he did after he was banished, after his murder, he had a son who built a city. A city. Interesting. Do you see the contrast being drawn? Adam and Eve in the garden. Cain and Cain's genealogy, those who concentrated in cities. They became... Those who were responsible for the necessity of a flood to come upon the earth. Speaking of which, continuing on in the story, we get to Noah. You know that Noah's occupation for many years, of course, is that he was a shipbuilder, but what about after the flood? Do you know what Noah did for a living? Genesis 9, verse 20, says that he was an husbandman, a farmer, a man of the soil. So God's holy line of people, continuing the process of being close to nature, close to the earth, seated originally in the Garden of Eden, carrying on this tradition in contrast with those of the world in the antediluvian and the postdiluvian world. So contrast the Cain's genealogy now with what you read in the book Education, page 211. This would be Noah's family, Enoch, Methuselah, Even the patriarchs, these are in early ages, it says. With the people who were under God's direction, life was simple. They lived close to the heart of nature. Their children shared in the labor of the parents and studied the beauties and mysteries of nature's treasure house. And in the quiet of field and wood, they pondered those mighty truths handed down as a sacred trust from generation to generation. Now, before I read the last sentence in this paragraph, notice the context. In early ages, way, way back then, they lived close to the heart of nature and they labored in such setting. And such training produced strong men. Such training. What kind of training? Well, of course... Agricultural work, living life as a family, passing down the sacred truths to your children, that training produced strong men. At the same time as, as we heard, Cain's genealogy, here you've got Noah, you've got the folks in early ages. Here's another example from these very early times, the Tower of Babel. Do you see the two histories kind of running parallel to one another? Notice the Tower of Babel, people again concentrating in a megaplex with this massive building project of a tower that would go to the heavens. You you don't get much more urban than that in the ancient world. Fast forward now to the time of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We read the following. The education centering in the family was that which prevailed in the days of the patriarchs. So they continued this tradition from the Garden of Eden all the way down to Abraham's time. For the schools thus established, God provided the conditions most favorable for the development of character. So what were these conditions that he built, that he designed, that he indicated that his people should do? The conditions were, it says, the men who held fast God's principles of life dwelt among the fields and hills. They were tillers of the soil and keepers of flocks and herds. And in this free, independent life, with its opportunities for labor and study and meditation, they learned of God and taught their children of his works and ways. Isn't that a beautiful picture from the book Education? Oh, you can imagine this 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 scenario, this setting, this true education, this being tillers of the soil and keepers of the flocks and herds, was best, it says, most favorable for the development of character. So we've now heard most favorable for the development of character. We've heard such training produced strong men. Let's continue in this story and see if the trend advances. In God's plan for Israel, every family had a home on the land with sufficient ground for tilling. Thus were provided both the means and incentive for a useful, industrious, and self-supporting life. And listen to this part. No devising of men has ever improved upon that plan. That's from Councils to Parents, Teachers, and Students, page 275. Did you, did you hear it, though? No devising of man has ever improved upon God's Garden of Eden plan. But that was how he did it originally. That was his design. He didn't make a mistake. This training produces strong men. It is the training most favorable for development. And no devising of man has ever improved upon that plan. I think you're getting the picture. Country living, agriculture as a key part in the broader picture of how we live as followers of the Most High. Now, of course, mankind in our age has tried to improve upon this plan. We say, well, we've got a a bigger, better idea here. Most prominently, the two just tools, weapons in Satan's arsenal to divert people from God's original plan and design for them, the two things that I spend a lot of time talking about in seminars that I do, Media on the Brain, of course, the seminar Schooled, which is the subtitle, The Deliberate Agenda to Destroy Individuality, Reduce Intelligence, and Re-Engineer Society. Why emphasize these points so much? Because these are the things that are capturing the minds of the children from a very early age. I want to spend some time talking about these in this session, and then at the end we'll circle back around and see God's plan in action and how it's working today. But if you go back in the history just a bit to the origins of, we'll start with the schooling piece, and then we'll talk more about media after that, but 1913 was the year. And the organization funding the public school system in America, which was under construction at that time, 100 years ago, it was the John D. Rockefeller Education Board. Now we'll talk more about the history and the industrialists and what was going on, but I just first want you to hone in on the urbanization aspect of this. Listen to this statement from the Rockefeller Education Board about what they were trying to do when they built public education in America. In our dreams, we have limitless resources, and the people yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hands. The present education conventions fade from their minds, and unhampered by tradition, we work our own goodwill upon a grateful and responsive rural folk. Did you hear that? rural folk moving to the cities during this era of industrialization and urbanization, concentrating more and more in city centers in America, the rural people coming in, they're going to undergo a good schooling, if you will, at the hands of these founders and architects of modern schooling. The people will yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hands, they said. Now the rest of the quote goes like this. We shall not try to make these people or any of their children into philosophers or men of learning or men of science. We have not to raise up from among them authors, editors, poets, or men of letters. We shall not search for embryo great artists, painters, musicians, nor lawyers, doctors, preachers, politicians, statesmen, of whom we have an ample supply. So they said, we're trying to do something specific with this massive nationwide formation of this public school system. And that is, we're going to try to create docility. That means compliance training to create good automatons, if you will, in the industrial machine that was developing at the time, you will have workers that will be plugged into that, serving their function punctiliously and obediently according to the design of the system, not businessmen, not entrepreneurs, not philosophers, not men of learning and men of letters and painters and lawyers and doctors and all of these things. No, 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 no. That's not what we're going for, the founders of American public schooling said. We're going for docility training. Do you know where this comes from? If you go back in the history, you go to the Dark Ages, the power elite of the society, if you will, the priest class, the Roman papal powers, and the kings of Europe were very, very happy keeping the people in the dark, illiterate ignorant of the scriptures and of, of basically anything. This was the dark ages. So if you can keep people unable to read, you can keep them controlled and whatever you tell them, they will believe because they are not able to think and question. They don't have a knowledge base. They don't have the Bible in the common tongue. But then the most wonderful thing happened, which we are celebrating this year, 2017, 500 years ago, Martin Luther started the Protestant Reformation And concurrently with that, around that time also, the great invention of the time, which enabled the tracts and the Bibles to be printed, Gutenberg's printing press changed Europe, changed the world, because the Protestant Reformation truths could now be distributed to the masses. Awakening, enlightenment, people learning, a general reformation, and most importantly, the Bible in the common tongue, coming to the people, a knowledge of the truth, just spreading like wildfire. An amazing time in history that the powers that be were not pleased with. Of course, the Counter-Reformation was launched as a response to this Reformation. The Roman Catholic Counter-Reformation was led in large part by what they called the Society of Jesus. This is an order of priests, also known as the Jesuit order. And you read from Bertrand Russell, a secular historian on this, just pointing out what was going on. He said the Jesuits provided one sort of education for the boys who were to become ordinary men of the world, and another for those who were to become the members of the society of Jesus. So how do you take back what's been lost by the Protestant Reformation? Well, if you're of this power elite mindset, you're going to go, okay, we've got to start an education system, because if you can't beat them, join them. I mean, Gutenberg's printing press is out of the bag. That cat is out of the bag. No putting that away. We've got to control the education system. Then we can have control over the minds of the people again. Ordinary men, you read on, says, this is Bertrand Russell speaking of the Jesuit education system of the time. Ordinary men and women will be expected to be docile, industrious, punctual, thoughtless, and contented. Now, we can all buy into industrious and punctual. Those are good things. But docility, we've heard that somewhere before with the Rockefeller Institute. Thoughtlessness, Trying to produce thoughtlessness? I thought that the aim of true education is to develop the power in the young to think and not be mere reflectors of other men's thoughts. Well, that's true education. This, my friends, is false education, as you know, to produce mere thoughtlessness. The Prussians picked this up and have made it famous. It's called Prussian-style schooling to this day. The year was 1807. Johann Gottlieb Fichte in his address to the German nation pointed out what their aim and their civil structures of public schooling in Prussia would be. He says, the education should provide the means to... Now, when you finish that quote, there's lots of wonderful things you could put in there if you were doing true education, right? Education should provide the means to bring children into a knowledge of salvation in the everlasting gospel of Jesus Christ, to train missionaries, to train for practical life, to develop character, all these wonderful things, right? But here's what the Prussian schooling mindset said 200 years ago. Education should provide the means to destroy free will. If you want to influence the student at all, you must do merely, more than merely talk to him. You must fashion him and fashion him in such a way that he simply cannot will... Otherwise, than what you wish him to will. Destroy free will. Now, what does that have to do with modern times? Is this something that's just part of ancient history, the 1500s and these, these old industrialists and the Prussians and their history? No, this went global. The year was 1844. You know that some magnificent things were happening in 1844 as far as the present truth message and the three angels' messages and the heavenly sanctuary and the birthing of this Advent movement... But also in 1844, the founder of American public schooling, Horace Mann, was returning from Prussia, where he had been visiting to learn about their system. And he gave his second annual report to the Boston, Massachusetts School Committee, and he said, we're going to bring Prussian-style schooling here, which began a turn of events and a snowball that over the next half century brought compulsory schooling laws to every state in the country, but one who followed later, very soon after, and you had prussian schooling emerging in america and that year was 1906 when William Torrey Harris, who had spent his career trying to bring about this system of compulsory schooling in America, where every child from a very early age would be inducted into this, and there's a lot of altruistic motives here, too. You know, a lot of these people thought they were doing well by the kids, and of course, public school teachers today, most of them are trying to help children, but this whole thing was conceived in iniquity. William Torrey Harris was the U.S. Commissioner of Education, and he worked to Prussianize the American schools during the 1890s, very important decade for the Prussianization of schools. I'm holding back right now to not tell you about the, the, uh, the true education movement. That's all in the series called Undoctrinated, four discs. That one runs parallel to this and gives the, gives the good and true news. But with limited time this morning, 1906, William Torrey Harris said the following, 99 students out of 100 are automata. That would be automatons, Robots. They are careful to walk in prescribed paths, careful to follow the prescribed custom. This is not an accident, but the result of substantial education, which scientifically defined is the subsumption of the individual. Now, if you're not familiar with that term subsumption, basically we are alienating children from their own individuality. We are merging them into the collective mind. It's like if you take a piece of dough that has its own unique character to it, and you stuff it into a lump of dough, and merge it all in there, and mix it all together, it has lost its unique character, right? That's subsuming the piece of dough in the larger dough piece. We're going to subsume the individuality of the children, and he says, we've done it. Uh, this, is, this is what education is. We have the, the scientific definition of education is to subsume their individuality, and we've done it. 99 students out of 100 are now automatons, They've actually done recent research on this to see uh, what what age groups have what kind of skills to think independently, creatively, what they call being a creative genius or divergent thinking. Ninety-eight percent of children aged three to five scored as what would qualify as creative genius. Ninety-eight percent of them. After five years of schooling, though, they retested these same children And and what they all had, virtually all of them had naturally as an endowment from God, we are given a power akin to that of the Creator, the power to think and to do. And it is the power of true education to develop this power in the young so that they will not just be reflectors of other men's thoughts, but they will be thinkers. But what does false education do? It goes from 98% of children aged 3 to 5 having this creative genius innately after five years of schooling, they retested the same children, and only 32% still had that same ability. After five more years of school, only 10% still had that same ability. And by age 25, they found that only 2% of the population remains as divergent thinkers. Is that not tragic and sad? The, the individuality of humanity, I mean, this session is called How to Be Human Again, Do you understand that this is a system that is seeking to diminish our humanity, our image-bearing nature of God? It's trying to create an automatized population of people and individuals that are no longer able to think. 2% of the population remain as divergent thinkers. So William Torrey Harris was pretty close. He said 99 out of 100. Recent research says it was 98 out of 100. But either way, the picture is pretty bleak. Harold Rugg, in his book, The Great Technology, in 1933, pictured this dystopic future in which we now live. And he called it the scientific reconstruction of our social order. In other words, we're going to build a new society. We're reconstructing it. We're tearing down the old, building anew. Remember the rural folk now? They're coming to the cities, and we're going to do this thing differently. Their old ways of education, no, nope, we're going to teach them docility. Here's how Harold Rugg put it. He said, a new public mind is to be created. How? Only by creating tens of millions of individual minds and welding them into a new social mind. Singular. Groupthink. The collective. What Edward Bernays called the group mind. Through the schools of the world, the quotation goes on, we shall disseminate a new conception of government, one that will embrace all the activities of men, one that will postulate the need of scientific control. So we're going to teach a new position, a new viewpoint, a new philosophy on the role of government. What is the role of the state? Biblically, Romans 13, of course, he's been given the sword to minister vengeance upon the wrongdoer. You know, thieves, murderers, etc. They get arrested, they get tried, they get put in prison This is the proper role of the state, to protect life, liberty, property. The Declaration of Independence, which is cited in the book, The Great Controversy, lays that out. But... Revelation 13 posits a new idea that the state would have purview over religious matters and matters of individual conscience and legislating on the day of worship and these things that ought to be up to individual conscience. Well, they've got to have a system in place that rewires people's thinking about this. This new social mind will accept this idea through the schools of the world. We shall disseminate a new conception of government. So you see where this is going with regard to prophecy. Bertrand Russell put it this way. It is to be expected that advances in physiology and psychology will give governments much more control over individual mentality than they now have even in totalitarian countries. Fichte laid it down that education should aim at destroying free will so that after pupils have left school, they shall be incapable throughout the rest of their lives of thinking or acting otherwise than as their schoolmasters would have wished. Diet, injections, and injunctions will combine from a very early age, notice that, from a very early age, to produce the sort of character and the sort of beliefs that the authorities consider desirable, and any serious criticism of the powers that be will become psychologically impossible. There's so much to be said more on this topic of worldly schooling and the history and the current implementation of it. I've got three hours on it. It's on the DVD set called Schooled. I won't say anything more on it. But do you, do you see now why this statement from Fundamentals of Christian Education, page 470, is so important? I beg of parents to place their children where they will not be bewitched by a false education. It's bewitching, it's satanic. It's a demonic spiritual plot It's not just human beings doing these things. This is the devil's agenda from the very start. Here's the beautiful part of the quote. Their only safety is in learning of Christ. He is the great central light of the world. All other lights, all other wisdom are foolishness. Amen to that, right? But how about this supposed light? The dawn of modern media and entertainments. The year was 1844. And the telegraph. The first telegraph ever was sent in 1844. Now you might say, well, there's nothing wrong with a telegraph, and there's certainly nothing wrong with with, with good schools. And so this 1844 concept is about how the devil is getting involved in these two very things that God wants to use for good. He wants true education. He wants good schools, right? We also can use modern media in a very positive and beneficial and God-glorifying and soul-winning and earth-changing way But 1844 was the birth of that beginning of the very first of the telecommunications where you can communicate instantaneously, simultaneously, across distances with that telegraph, which set into motion a series of events which became modern media and telecommunications, which today, of course, as you know, is being used not only for good, but 90 plus percent of that out there in the entertainment world especially. George Barna put it this way, media exposure has become America's most widespread and serious addiction. So this is a big, big problem, isn't it? 96.6% of toddlers and preschoolers are now using mobile devices. And the American Academy of Pediatrics came out and said, you know, we're realizing that we can no longer really make recommendations on screen time like we used to be able to, because screen time has just become time. They're synonymous. People are basically swimming in media all day. So they said we're dialing back and, and 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 reducing some of our recommendations. They used to say no no media for children under two. And now they're saying, well, we, we we take that back because everybody's doing it anyway. 96.6% of toddlers and preschoolers are using mobile devices. Total screen time for the average American child is over 53 hours per week. Teens now consume nine hours. Of entertainment media per day by the way it's easy to harp on the teens because that is an obscene amount of entertainment media and that's that's there's also um, academic media on top of that but <laughs> the recent study that came out floored me parents are spending nearly eight hours per day on entertainment media a total of nine hours and 22 minutes and about 90 minutes of that is for work. So that leaves just under eight hours of entertainment media for parents. Wonder where the teens get the idea from, right? The average young person racks up 10,000 hours of video gaming by the age of 21. And 5 million gamers in the United States are spending more than 40 hours per week playing video games. Now, I've been sharing these statistics and these numbers for quite some time, and it's, it's huge. It's, it's all-encompassing, but it's almost to the point where the number of hours is becoming an irrelevant, outmoded uh, concept and way of looking at this because we're so immersed in it 24-7 now, it's a new way of life. We're starting to become just sucked into this, this vortex, if you will, of constant... Media: Three quarters of UK children spend less time outdoors than prison inmates, survey finds. Three quarters of the children spending less time outdoors than prison inmates. Is that not an appropriate and applicable fact for our conference here where we're thinking about how to restore God's original design for humanity and how we live agriculture, outdoors, country living? Three quarters of the kids are in a virtual prison. This is a counterfeit reality. The virtual reality is another place we go now. It's a new place we live. We immerse ourselves in the social media culture and our minds and our, and, our, and our thoughts and emotions go there and the entertainment and all of it. And it's from a very early age. The picture speaks a thousand words. For those listening to the audio, it's a baby in a bouncy seat with, of course, the iPad attachment. That's not made up. This is not satire. That's an actual product out there. The average child will spend more time watching TV by the age of six than he will spend in conversation with his father in his entire life. Will this training produce strong men? Is this the most favorable thing for our development? Has this devising of man improved upon God's plan? Of course not. Going back to those original quotes, we've got to get back. Get back to God's plan. What are we doing to ourselves? When we're raised, are we raising our children in this They are raised by screens and raised in desks. They're immersed in this state of inactivity, passively viewing these things or punching the video game on the iPad or whatever it is from 96.6% of the toddlers doing it. Children now are not learning practical skills. How about this one from the Telegraph? Children learn to tie shoelaces later than ever before. Today's children may be whiz kids at high-tech gadgets, but they now learn to tie their shoelaces at a later age than ever before, a new report has found. Even as late as 9 to 10 years old. The UK, UK Telegraph also published a report where they put almost a third of children starting school are lacking social skills, having speech problems, or not toilet trained, the survey of senior primary school staff has found. Now, granted, these kids are going to school way too early. We're supposed to be waiting until age 8 or 10 to start formal academics in a true education, school of the prophets type of setting. But these are kids, are usually by age 4 or 5, you got the toilet training thing down. You may have a mishap here or there. You know, we're nice to our kids about that, of course, but not toilet trained, Lacking social skills, having speech problems. What's going on? One head teacher said, There is limited parent-child interaction. There's the key. Four-year-olds know how to swipe a phone, but haven't a clue about conversations. Another primary school leader warned, We are having more and more children entering our early years stage with delayed speech. The State of Education report found four-fifths of teachers were worried about poor social skills or children having speech problems. More than two-thirds had seen children lacking self-help skills. In 2012, when I first started doing this media on the brain presentation and and, and sharing this with my students and and, and on, I used to be a teacher, the numbers were were horrifying, right? It was like one third of Americans are looking at a screen for over five hours per day. That was the Vision Council found that study. Well, they did another study four years later, 2016. The numbers had nearly doubled. 60% of people now are staring at a screen for over five hours or more. A lot of those are a lot more than five. The average American now spends 4.7 hours on their smartphone per day. 2.42 hours actually touching and swiping the smartphone. So if you're all up close with the phone like this, I mean, your eyes are, are, are not, that's not how we were designed to live, right? With all this near work and, and, and focusing on that, on the on the small text of the, of the phone and, and going this way and that. Well, what they've seen is a increase in myopia, in in nearsightedness, just in recent years. When you look at Asian rates or East Asia, where they're very much immersed in this technology,
1: 90%
0: myopia rates. And it's changing literally our physiological structure, our skeletal structure. A lot of the the chiropractors and the physical therapists and the pediatricians and all of them are worried about the development of children who are hunched over like this all the time. They're getting more and more cases of hyperkyphosis, or what they just call kyphosis, the curvature of the upper spine into the neck area. A major problem that they're concerned about, which impacts digestion the lungs all of it when you're hunched like that we've got some good counsel on that actually in spirit of prophecy but in today's day I suppose we're going to have to uh update that that old evolution chart I mean you remember that that silly thing with the with the shadow images of the monkey first he's on all fours like this and then then he gets up and he's kind of like that the second picture is a monkey up like this then the third picture is like Neanderthal man kind of over like this a little bit then finally humankind, homo erectus, homo sapien, right? We are standing tall and straight. Well, we have to update that chart because we've now changed, apparently, what it means to be human as it relates to our shape and our body structure. We have to have a picture of a guy like this with his phone hunched over to update the devolution, I suppose you would call that, or de-evolution. Of course, that chart is, is, is not true, but if you were to believe in that chart, you would have to update it as such. In a recent survey internet connection outranks hot water and daylight in the things that Millennials value most for quality of life did you hear that you rank the things that you want for quality of life you know running water indoor plumbing all these things okay internet connection outranks daylight in the things Millennials value most for quality of life I could go without ever seeing the sunshine or being outdoors in the daytime ever again as long as I got that internet connection. What? And hot water. I'll take a cold shower every day of my life, but I can't go without it without Wi-Fi. This is getting scary. And and it actually is very scary because cell phone related injuries are up 84% now. I didn't know there was such a thing as cell phone related injuries, but they tell us that, you know, people are dropping the phone on their face while lying back in bed and chips a tooth or you run into something or one guy walked off a cliff and died in in, in San Diego on Christmas day two years ago. Very sad and tragic. Um, In certain municipalities in Australia and in Germany, they're, they're recognizing people are walking into traffic while on their phones. So they said, we're gonna meet people where they're at to stop these incidents. We've had a number of these incidents where people are just walking right into oncoming traffic and pedestrian issues happening. So they've moved the stoplights from being up at eye level to actually, the, we're, we're eliminating that and we're putting the stoplights now for pedestrians at curb level because this is where we live now, right? We're all down here. This is the new place for the human eyes to be focused and the human shape of the body, as we talked about. It's, it's as if, like, well, we have a generation of people that don't know what the sky looks like or something coming in the near future. And you might say, well, that's, that's, that, that could never happen. But, you know, I never thought I would see the iPotty for iPad. Yes, the iPotty. Potty training your child now has to become a tech gadget virtually infused experience. You've got the little toddler's potty with the ipad attachment it has reached that level and as we heard parents are on their devices for eight hours a day and on entertainment media so um the children of course somebody's got to read them stories right we've got to outsource our parenting to somebody well they'll be raised by screens and by by schools but You know, there's not much interaction then between the teacher and her many, many students, and there's not that connection with the mother or the father for that matter. So what they've invented, half a million dollar grant from National Science Foundation, Robots to tell preschoolers stories. Yes, social robots. Because we have to automize what used to be a human thing. Are you noticing the trend here? We're seeing a chiseling away at what it means to be human. A defacing of what it means to be human. That's the social contact, the face-to-face. You already knew we're all immersed in the social media. and, And people are more lonely than ever, the research is finding. Even though they have more, quote, friends than ever on Facebook and whatever. Here we are now needing social robots and same thing for the elderly the telegraph reported ai robot friend launched to chat and play games with lonely elderly that is so sad i mean what what are we doing in this day and age this is this is not of course god's plan for us to live as families to have this country living experience and the community around nope we've got now such isolation and loneliness that there is emerging in certain like trendy you know western cities and metro areas a a cuddling craze and i'm not making this up cuddling with strangers is one of the trends out there they have apps where you can hook up with people just to have a platonic cuddling experience cafes you can go for cuddling having cuddling parties and there are professional cuddlers because people are lonely they need a hug and so It's a booming business. It's not that large yet, but this is a little window into a culture that is sick, that is mentally ill. We are a society that is just breaking down at the very fabric of things. And this is one illustration, one manifestation of how crazy things can get if you divorce yourself from God's plan. When you follow down this virtual prison and you go to this worldly schooling method, We end up with USA Today reports lonely. This chair will hug you back. Yes, you heard that right. You're a little weirded out by a cuddling party and cuddling with strangers and professional cuddlers like we probably should be. Just get the chair. This is a South Korean invention, one of the most tech-savvy, heavy, virtually-immersed societies in the whole world. The chair has arms in the back that kind of snuggle you and you can feel a little bit loved. Now, I've been sharing this quotation for a long time, and it, it, it always kind of like freaked me out a little bit. Like, really? This is actually happening in the brain? But it's much more real than we even think. You'll see in a moment. Martin Lidstrom, the neuromarketing app expert at Apple, was the one that studied the brain to see how your iPhone interacts with different neurological circuitry for marketing purposes. And what they found is, what happens is, you have a very specific relationship with your iPhone. What we learned from a very recent study we did was that there were actually two activations happening for people who are in love with their iPhones. Did you hear what I said? He goes on, in love. Because we actually realized from the study that the same area of the brain that is activated when you are in love with someone is activated when you are in love with your iPhone. I just don't know what to say about that, literally. In, you know, I like I kinda like my device. It's it's efficient, it's helpful. I'm all about using modern technology for the benefit of of of, of the evangelistic work that we're doing and efficiencies and all of that. You know, that's great, but I don't I, I like it. I don't love my iPhone. But what they found actually in another study is that lonely people begin to humanize tech gadgets. Humanize. So you start to personify, you start to Act like it's an actual being, which you just go, oh, this is just getting crazy. This is the end road of where we're going with this. Would you marry a robot? Dailymail.com asks, UK Daily Mail. And artificial intelligence will allow people to find lasting love with machines, say the futurists and the tech guru experts. How about this one? Would you date a robot? One in four claim that they would but only if it looks human. Oh, of course. Okay, so they've got these humanoid-looking robots that can be just like the perfect mate, right? It's the perfect match. One quarter of people are to the point where I'm just done. I can just do without human relationships. I will date a robot, say the young people in these, in these t- surveys. So when we, when we lose what it means to be a human and when we immerse ourselves in this virtual prison, the sad reality is what Dr. Keith Abloh points out, psychologist, he says, is social media fueling a national epidemic of teen suicide? He says, for some time now, I have noted that young people are disconnected from the reality of their own existences. Facebook, Twitter, Tinder, and the like have made them think of themselves as mini reality TV versions of themselves. Too many of them see their lives merely as a series of flickering photos or quick videos. They need constant doses of admiration and constant confirmation of their tenuous existence. And of course, that confirmation and admiration comes in the form of Facebook likes and Twitter retweets. This substitution of media for real meaning has not only been shown to weaken their self-esteem and their ability to sustain themselves through adversity, but it can cheapen the value they assign to life in general, including their own lives. If all the world is a stage of pixels, and young people see themselves as their tweets and Snapchat photos, then taking a fistful of pills could seem like no more than the equivalent of shutting down a Facebook account or turning off an iPhone. Does that not make your heart break? A generation so disconnected from reality, from God, from others, even from an understanding of who they are. We could go on with these things, but but human labor is one aspect of this, part of what it means to be human. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 10, if any would not work, neither should he eat. (laughs) The Lord has designed it so that we must work labor in order to earn our keep. But... The economic minds and the tech guru minds of our time are asking a pertinent question. Will humans need to work for a living in the near future? Already now, you've you've heard about this for decades. The, The robots, the AI technology going to do all these jobs. We're kind of starting to live in that future right now. This is a robot of Domino's Pizza delivering pizzas. Robots now doing the pizza delivering. Pizza Hut, the same thing in some countries in the world. Then here's a headline for us at the Ag Conference, Washington Post. This robot is a better gardener than you. Well, what if everything became mechanized? Even the, the, the ver- most close to nature human experience of growing our own food that God has designed us to experience. So much part and parcel of what it, what it means to live by God's design. The Garden of Eden, remember all that? What if we had all of that? And I'm all about, by the way, using machines, using labor-saving devices. We all ought to be all about that, right? I mean, efficiencies, increased productivity, that's great. But at some point, we slide into this, this, this thing of the robot is better at gardening, the, the, the AI technology will cover everything. And they're saying, within the next couple of decades, literally half of the jobs on planet Earth today will, be, will not exist. Humans won't need to do them because we will have the technology doing the work. And so they're flirting with this idea in economic circles and in public policy circles. In fact, it's already in place in Finland. It's called universal basic income. Finland is doing a test run of this with a subsector of the population. And, and what the goal is here is to broaden this out to everybody. So the whole country, not just the Finland, but the, all the Western countries are talking about doing this. We've got enough wealth to take care of everybody. The big, you know, tech firms and, and robotics companies, I mean, they're going to be raking in so much dough. We'll tax them and have a general welfare program, not to, not to help the needy, but for everybody to have paychecks from the government called universal basic income enough income to live on, universally. So nobody will have to work. I mean, you can work on top of that and earn more if you'd like, but you don't have to. Do you see how this might be also altering and debasing Part of what it means to be human, I mean, we'll just sit and play video games all day, right? And Many people would make that choice under such a setting when there's no necess- there's no incentive. there's no, They're not necessitated. There's no necessary need here to actually work in order to earn a living. Google robot is the end of manual labor. So it's not just earning a living. It's household duties. It's anything. This is CNBC reported this. The experts are saying it's super eerie. In, in 10 years, the idea is going to be would you let this robot put your kids to bed? Would you let it change your kid's diaper? That's how fast this is going to advance, they say. It's picking up packages right now. These, are things, these things are going to be walking down the road 10 to 15 years from now. Delivering pizzas, they're actually already doing that. They're going to be in your office, moving packages around, etc. You, you get the idea. But did you hear the part even about the, the childcare being done by robots? This is absolutely unthinkable they're actually talking about these are conversations we're going to be having and many people have so seamlessly just merged their lives into the virtual into the into the tech into the social media when you when you merge these two together there's no there's no distinction between the real and the virtual and we can just bring the two seamlessly together this is as crazy as it sounds into by the 2030s from If you've ever heard the name uh, Ray Kurzweil, he's a a futurist, he's a big tech guru guy, and he says that that by the 2030s, human brains are literally going to be able to connect to the cloud. Using little nanobots swimming around in the capillaries of our brain, we can just think into the Internet. We can download and back up our thoughts, send emails and pictures with thoughts. I mean, that is futuristic, right? I mean, this is like out of a sci-fi novel, but he's saying this is a reality in the next couple of decades. The technology will be there. And give it another couple of decades and it could become ubiquitous. Elon Musk refers to it as neural lace. He's another you know tech guy with Tesla. He says the brain will have an actual electronic layer and that will work then with the artificial intelligence to help you instantaneously access online information with the nanobots in our brains giving us new bodily senses and we can then download skills and eventually personality traits What they're saying, basically, is most thinking will be non-biological. This is basically the end of what it means to be human, right? I mean, if our brain is now wired directly in to this, they call it, we're going to become godlike. But, of course, we have to surrender our humanity first, our autonomy as physiological, spiritual beings, has to be surrendered, but, but I wonder, are we already on that slippery slope? Is the phone always on? Is it always available? Are we always picking it up and swiping it when there's nothing else to do and you just have a moment of, hmm, nobody's saying anything, doing anything? You just pick it. Why did I just do that? Why didn't, it didn't give me an alert. I'm just constantly needing to go there. We're already on that slippery slope down into this virtual uh, singularity or whatever their, their, their weird sci-fi you know theories about it are, and I don't believe God's going to let it go on this long because this is his children, this is his species human he has created. The human race, whatever you want to call it, these intelligent, thinking, creative beings who have a social connection, a spiritual connection with the divine, who have a connection with the nature around us through agriculture, but... Who will then lose that if we become merged into the tech? Is technology causing us to evolve into a new species? Expert believes superhumans called Homo optimus will talk to machines and be digitally immortal by 2050. Don't count on us being around in 2050 becoming gods. Doesn't this kind of sound like Isaiah 14, by the way? I will be in the position of the Most High. I will be like God. He says to Eve, you'll be like God. This is just the latest manifestation of it. So how can we become human again? That's the ultimate question. You've seen the worldly schooling agenda creating unthinking automatons. You've seen the worldly media just just enveloping us into this virtual prison and saturating our lives into this cyborg future. How can we retain and recapture our humanity. Now this statement absolutely floored me. When you think about what kind of a generation we want to be finishing the work, what do we want for our young people and for all of us to be like? It says, how about this? A more elevated class of youth. I'm gonna give you the end of the quote than the beginning. You'll see how you produce. This more elevated class of youth to come upon the stage of action, to have an influence in molding society. They would have perseverance, fortitude, And courage to surmount obstacles. And they would have such principles that they would not be swayed by a wrong influence. However popular that wrong influence might be. Okay, that was the end part of the quote from Testimonies, Volume 3, page 156. Here's the first part. So so what produces that? had there been agricultural and manufacturing establishments connected with our schools and had competent teachers been employed to educate the youth in the different branches of study and labor devoting a portion of each day to mental improvement and a portion to physical labor there would now be a more elevated class of youth to come upon the stage of action to have an influence in molding society they would have perseverance fortitude and courage to surmount obstacles And they would have such principles that they would not be swayed by a wrong influence, however popular. Now, that blew me away. I didn't expect that. (coughs) This said, if we had agriculture and manufacturing work and labor, in other words, if we lived the true education way, where we divide the manual and the mental, where we have some physical, real-world, three-dimensional labor activity, manual things, and it mentions specifically agriculture, then we would have a more elevated class of youth who have fortitude who have principles who have perseverance who have courage to surmount obstacles i never would have thought that as a former teacher i taught for 11 years and i you know learned about how the these schools do things and i never would have in my wildest imagination pinpointed agriculture as a key component in developing this in the youth Now, if you're hearing this going, okay, well, I'm not in school. This is great for the kids. And okay, so moving on with me. No, 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 no. It says in the book, Education, that true education has to do with, quote, the whole period of man's existence. So that's your whole life. And frankly, for eternity. So if you exist, the whole period of man's existence, if you exist, true education is for you. Living by God's design as he created in the Garden of Eden and the many multifaceted aspects of what that looks like in practice, including agriculture, is for you if you exist because true education is for the whole period of man's existence. Now what you're going to hear in the subsequent quotations here and principles and studies and findings is some of what's in the series called Undoctrinated. The subtitle of that one is How Home Education and Schools of the Prophets Will Produce the Last Generation. Because if God can get us back to this original design, following his program, we finish the work. I wish I could get into all that right now, but let's get into just... How do we recapture our humanity in this aspect of agriculture? First of all, Mrs. White in education page 207 spoke out against the Prussianization of the schools where the children were put in at a very early age, long school days, long school years. She wrote, here in the classroom, little children have to spend from three to five hours a day. She was aghast. Three hours a day? For little children in the classroom where I come from that's called a half day by the way hey we're out by 1130 and we're off off for the rest of the day but this was something that was not considered healthy parents inaction is the greatest curse that ever came upon youth you think about those screens and those desks and that's 24 7 experience of just being sedentary being in a classroom being involved in media The greatest curse that ever came upon youth. Education 208, children should not be long confined within doors. Now, we're talking about different age groups here as well. I mean, if we're talking about toddlers through age 8 or 10, we're not even doing the schoolroom thing yet at all. Formal academics comes later. So that's the early years. But then the little children who are of school age should not long be confined indoors. And then once we get to youth age... 12 and older, we're looking at a 50-50 mental and physical labor proportions. And we'll see if we're going to err on one of those, which side you should err on. But listen to what the great teacher did. Capital T, Jesus. The great teacher brought his hearers in contact with nature, that they might listen to the voice which speaks in all created things. Oh, isn't that beautiful? And as their hearts became tender and their minds receptive, He helped them to interpret the spiritual teaching of the scenes upon which their eyes rested. So we should teach. Same way. In their gardening, question them, question the children and youth, as to what they learn from the care of their plants. As they look upon a beautiful landscape, ask them why God clothed the fields and woods with such lovely and varied hues. You get the idea. As parents and teachers try to teach these lessons, the work should be made practical. Let the children themselves prepare the soil and sow the seed. As they work, the parent or teacher can explain. Now I'm bullet pointing these, so you'll see on the on the slide. This isn't exactly how it looks in the book, but it's the same words. I want you to think through all of these items. So the children are doing their gardening. They're planting the seed. And as they work, the parent or the teacher can explain the garden of the heart with the good or bad seed sown there. And that as the garden must be prepared for the natural seed, so the heart must be prepared for the seed of truth. The attention required in transplanting that not even a root fiber shall be crowded or misplaced. There's another one. The care of young plants. The pruning and watering, the shielding from frost at night, and sun by day, keeping out weeds, disease, and insect pests, the training and arranging. We've got a good bullet point list, right? And these not only teach important lessons concerning the development of character, but the work itself is a means of development. How to be human again, here you have it. And the lessons taught prepare the worker to deal more successfully with other minds. Isn't that beautiful? So agricultural work has a practical benefit. You've got food to eat, right? You're learning how to do something productive. It's a means of physical development. It's a means of mental development. It teaches spiritual lessons by the object lessons therein. And it prepares the gardener to win souls. And you could go on and on and on. How about this? You could have a whole conference on the subject. Now, this next quote is one that really is one of those eye-opener quotes. It's been a special focus for me as I've done this new series called Second Beast Rising, which was just released this month, the first volume of it. The rest is coming. And we are rapidly nearing the final crisis in this world's history. If you're not seeing it around us, we're we're not paying attention to the signs of the times because you look across the board. Global crises of every magnitude from the pestilences, from the natural disasters, and the geopolitical strife, wars and rumors of wars, a cultural collapse disorder like we've never seen before in history. We are rapidly nearing the final crisis in this world's history. What does that have to do with agriculture? Well, said, the rest of the quote in Councils to Parents, Teachers, and Students, 56, says, And it is important that we understand that the educational advantages offered by our schools are to be different from those offered by the schools of the world. You see, it's not just about learning, reading, writing, arithmetic. This, this is about preparing us for the last days. Part of that being a practical education in doing things that are real and productive to, to feed people in times of global crisis. It says, a thorough understanding of useful labor is due their children that should misfortune come. They could stand forth in noble independence, knowing how to use their hands. If they have a capital of strength, they cannot be poor, even if they have not a dollar. Then how important that every youth be educated to labor, that he may be prepared for any emergency. And there's one coming. So if we don't have a practical education with useful skills being learned, most importantly being agricultural skills, I've got a bullet-pointed list here of Testimonies, Volume 3, Education, some different statements. If we don't have an education that is practical... People are referred to as educated dunces. Now, that's not trying to be mean. I include myself in that because I had the traditional conventional worldly schooling and I'm still learning some basic practical skills myself. And really what it says is it's a failure. Testimonies 3, 153. And by the way, I'm not citing every, every quotation here. Just get the PowerPoint, look it up. All the citations are there. Look them up. You can Google them, whatever. Put, look it up on your E.G. White search app. But it, 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 if we have a non-practical type of you know, only theoretical, only just academic, not useful academic curriculum, it's a, it's a failure of an education. Those who come out of that will be educated dunces. They will be, quote, out of touch with life. There's another one. They will be unprepared for real life and sooner or later they will be misled. That's pretty serious in terms of the deceptions coming our way. It's also referred to in councils to parents, teachers, and students as a farce and a waste of money. Wow, those are some strong terms. We've got to have a practical type of education for our children and for ourselves. It says they should be taught that the discipline of systematic, well-regulated labor is essential, not only as a safeguard against the vicissitudes of life, but also as an aid to all-round development. God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden for a reason. When we live this labor life with the mind, with the academic, but we're dividing it equally, we're doing it in a balanced way, it's good for all-round development. That's how God created us to be. Even if it were certain that no one that one would never need to resort to manual labor for support, still he should be taught to work. So it's not just for that emergency type of thing where you, know, you want to grow your own food. No, it's, we all ought to do it because it's good for all-round development. What they found actually in research, children who garden regularly have greater self-confidence, self-worth, sense of self-worth, greater patience greater perseverance, greater learning ability. They, they perform, outperform their peers in reading, math, spelling, written language, all the academic subjects. Isn't that interesting? Because they work with increasing energy, the mind is more balanced and well-rounded. They become more intelligent. Character development, self-confidence, self-worth, perseverance, all of it improves the more, the, with, with, with children who garden versus those who don't. The research has shown what Spirit of Prophecy said is correct. No surprise there. Other research found, on, they've done hundreds of studies on these outdoor learning programs, outdoor education, and they found that it improves independence, confidence, personal effectiveness, coping strategies, some, some emotional intelligence there, social effectiveness, communication skills. All of these, by the way, are hugely important for just 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 becoming an adult and working in the work world and ministry and all of these things. This is just, again, restoring what how to be human again. And outdoor learning programs also produce higher achievement in reading, writing, and math. So how do you get better at reading, writing, and math? Do a little bit less reading, writing, and math. do outdoor learning programs and gardening and then you do those things while you're doing these as well you're reading up on your gardening you're doing some mathematical things as you're calculating your your crop and your, your garden size and all of this it's not to divorce from the academic learning but to do some fusing and to do some balancing green spaces the guardian reports improve school children's mental development study finds well that's probably no surprise It boosts short-term memory just by having vegetation around the school. This isn't even a country setting, but you get benefits from mental development by having some trees around you. Who would have thought? Only the student of the Bible, thousands of years ago, green spaces make kids smarter, the Atlantic reported. A new study finds that vegetation around schools cuts down on air pollution and boosts memory... And attention so all the research is acknowledging this and finding this in fact even in the International Journal of Christianity and Education this is an evangelical you know mainstream out there publication and they're going yeah they call it a harvest of humility you're going to love the first part of this quotation but the reason I share this quotation is to show you the pitfalls of if we don't lead with this and we're the tail If Babylon takes this and runs with it, it's going to enter into the distortions that you'll see at the end of the quote. But let's, let's appreciate and embrace the first part here. It says humility. This is from the International Journal of Christianity and Education, talking about agriculture and higher education. It says humility, the keystone of the virtues in the Christian spiritual tradition, has been dismissed by modern philosophers, critiqued by feminist theologians, and overpowered by our industrial and technological culture. Awesome sentence. And it says, the incorporation of agricultural experience in Christian higher education. Can you believe this? This is out there. The the Christian colleges out there, broadly speaking, evangelical Christianity out there. We, We want to incorporate agricultural experience, they're saying, in the higher education process. And this presents the opportunity to cultivate anew the virtue of humility. Amen, right? Properly understood, not as merely a practice of self-abnegation, but as a relation of the creature to the God who has gifted us with nourishing soil. That's great. He's given us this beautiful nourishing soil. with Of these you may freely eat with the vegetation and the wonderful, wonderful gift of agriculture. Now, the rest of it goes like this. This is a God who has gifted us with nourishing soil and deified us in Christ. Uh, Excuse me, what did that just say? Yes, agriculture deifies us in Christ. What? It makes us gods? Um, That's not okay, right? Right. Um, So, that's definitely not Christian, even though it was published in the International Journal of Christianity and Education. That was a Luciferian sentiment of Lucifer who said, I will be in the position of God. Uh, we, We can deify humanity. You can be a God unto yourself, your own God. Wait a minute. Where did that come out from? So, you get the idea. We want to be presenting this to the world, this beautiful truth, which the world is absolutely ripe for receiving. Everything these days, the trends are going local and organic and back to the earth and more traditional, old school is cool everywhere you go, and people are wanting to just escape from this virtual prison and this, this crazy technological culture we've found ourselves just burdened by. So people want this truth. We've got to share it. We've got the privilege. We've got the blessing. So we've got this idea. Labor, awesome for all-around development, especially agriculture. Listen to these quotes. God provided for them, meaning the, his people in the old times, just as for the dwellers in Eden, the occupation most favorable to development, the care of plants and animals. No line of manual training is of more value than agriculture. Some do not appreciate the value of agricultural work. These should not plan for our schools. Study in agricultural lines should be the A, B, and C of the education given in our schools. This is the very first work that should be entered upon. Let the teacher call attention to what the Bible says about agriculture, that it was God's plan for man to till the earth, and the first man, the ruler of the whole world, was given a garden to cultivate. Let the teachers share the work with the students. A return to simpler methods will be appreciated by the children and youth. Work in the garden and field will be an agreeable change from the wearisome routine of abstract lessons to which the young minds should never be confined. Helpless, starving people could learn self-support by learning agriculture. We could go on with quote, quote, after quote, after quote, after quote on this. It is important. And remember, it says in the book Education, page 30, that in the highest sense, the work of education and the work of redemption are one. So education is not merely the classroom, the academics, the skills and practical things you learn. No, 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 no. True education is synonymous with the process of redemption. So we're all coming to a knowledge of salvation, a knowledge of Jesus Christ as we study his word, as we study his works in nature, as we experience the development. Redemption is restoring what has been lost through the fall. Redemption is bringing us back to that original state, bringing us into Christ in me, the hope of glory. And and, and true education is the process of that redemption, it says. In the highest sense, the work of education and the work of redemption are one. Well, what was Satan's goal? Mar the image of God in man. Tear down what he has created in this beautiful human being. God's goal is to redeem, to restore our humanity that we had in the Garden of Eden. So true education, the process of redemption. Agriculture, the ABCs of true education, one of the first things you set out upon. You're seeing the importance of this now as the researchers are as well, to restoring people's mental health, not just you know, intelligence and, and these other things that we saw earlier, and, and character development, but also just mental health. Green spaces, BBC News, green spaces have lasting positive effect on well-being. They're reporting on a study on that regard. It says UK researchers found moving to a green space had a sustained positive effect, unlike pay raises or promotions, which only provided a, sh- pro- provided a short-term boost, so how do you have well-being, happiness? Live in the country. They call it green spaces. Connecting with nature offers a new approach to mental health care. A new study has been published by the, Natural, by the publication called Natural England, which reviews the benefits and outcomes of approaches to green care for mental ill health. SidePost reported study finds trees are linked to the reduction of psychological stress. You think God knew what he was doing putting Adam and Eve in a garden and calling the patriarchs and men in early ages and designing this for Israel. His blueprint for living is what's best for us. And we might think, well, there's another thing I have to do, and it's... No, 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 it's not a matter of that. God says, I have satisfied the desire of every living thing, and I have withheld no good thing from you. He... He wants to maximize our happiness, right? He wants to make us have as much joy and vibrancy of life. Jesus said, I came to give you the abundant life, life to the full, when we walk with him. Just like Adam and Eve walked with him in the garden, in the cool of the day. Here's a statement, in case you were on the fence on this. It says, if the youth can have but a one-sided education, which is of the greater consequence? A knowledge of the sciences with all the disadvantages to health and life so an academic focus or a knowledge of labor for practical life which includes first and foremost agricultural labor as we saw if you have to have one sided which which side would, would would you would you choose if it was going to be imbalanced one way we unhesitatingly answer the latter in other words a knowledge of labor for practical life is more important if one must be neglected which in most cases it doesn't need to be. But hypothetically, if one must be neglected, let it be the study of books. As a former teacher, again, this totally reshaped my view of education. And that's why I put out the series Schooled and Undoctrinated. Those two paired up, one exposing the worldly schooling program and the other one, how we can not be indoctrinated by the worldly schools, but undoctrinate, if you will, our children and ourselves from this worldly mold and frame of living that is so destructive to physiology, to mental health, to spiritual health. We can come into a better way. And yes, it's kind of radical sounding, but that's kind of exciting, right? When, when God bursts all of our preconceived notions, corrects our ideas, and we go, man, I was way wrong on that. It's exciting to come into a better way because you know things are going to be improving for everybody who lives this way. So the challenge is before us: Are we going to take this blueprint and own it, and say, "I want to be—I want to be a part of it. I want to get out in the garden as, as one piece, one rather large piece of this Eden-style living, the restoration of our humanity, redemption, true education, living." We now—we we now—we need now to begin over again. Reforms must be entered into with heart and soul and will. Errors may be hoary with age, but age does not make error truth nor truth error. Altogether too long have the old customs and habits been followed. Every day we are making our history. Yesterday is beyond our amendment or control. Today only is ours. Though in the past we have come short of doing what we might have done for our children and youth, let us now repent and redeem the time. Though in many respects our institutions of learning have swung into worldly conformity, though step by step they have advanced toward the world, they are prisoners of hope. If they will listen to his voice and follow in his ways, God will correct and enlighten them. And bring them back to their upright position of distinction from the world. Is that what we want today? Distinction from the world in the good sense. True progress toward God's ideal. True restoration of his original plan. That's what I want for myself, for my family, for all of humanity. God's blessed children, so many of whom are struggling under this burden, under this load and this weight of of what the modern world has brought us. It's a sad state, but we are prisoners of hope. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for challenging us, for stretching our imaginations a bit on how you might be calling us to live. And we know that we can trust you because you've sent your one and only son, Jesus Christ, that, that sacrifice, that immeasurable, un, unconceivable sacrifice that was wrought out at the cross, we, we just stand in awe and appreciation that our salvation has been purchased for us at such great cost. And since we behold a God of love who so epitomizes every, every ounce of self-sacrificing beneficence to goodness and beyond what we can even imagine, we trust you. We trust you with our lives and we ask you to direct us to be inspired, to have hope, to have joy about living by your plan. And each person in their unique station in life, where, where they live and what they're able to do, we know that you just ask us to do our best and to cooperate with your outworking of our story and, and, and our journey that we, each of us are on. And we thank you for leading us step by step. Help us, help us to step forward and to no longer, if we've gotten in ruts and we've been stationary, to not be satisfied, not be content with the status quo, but to see a bigger, brighter vision of hope. And we know that Jesus is worth it every sacrifice we can make so that we can be closer to him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.